The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Welcome to the Chris and Neil show. Um, I, I'm Chris. I mean, I'm Neil. Hey, Chris. I'm Neil. I'm Chris, and you're Neil. We're switching and places today. Everyone. It's not even Friday the 13th yet. <laughs> um, Chris uh, yeah, was just asking me. about my process about how I think about different things, and a friend of his is a prolific inventor, and I'd made a suggestion about how he structures it. So I thought I'd record, we'd record this and just start the podcast with this, but... You're asking about my process with how I thought think about that inventor and how I'd go research it or how I'd... Yes. So my, my, my investment process is very concrete bound. I'm looking at existing businesses and thinking about what are reasonable cash flows these businesses can throw off now and as best we can guess in the future since no one knows the future. For me, when I think about it, I mean, again, I'm... I've been more concrete bound in my investments. You're thinking about potential and the future to me is cloudy enough. How do you navigate that when you sit with um, a, a researcher or inventor or a team? How do you determine and decide whether this is an investable technology or a, an idea that has legs, et cetera? What's so, your process? So uh, with, with regard to your friend and with regard to the process, uh, I'll start mm -hmm. by saying, no process lasts forever. Um, we notice that we have to constantly adjust it depending on the deal. So if we're licensing something out of a university or if we're investing in something that was licensed out of a university or if we're investing in something that is just a brand new idea, the approaches are going to be different. Some of the fundamentals that will be the same in every one of those is going to be to evaluate the technology, obviously. Um, that one's huge for us. We like to see pretty broad-based technology that can be transferable to other fields. So, uh, for instance, um, a friend invented a, uh, a polymer that can be used as a dropper to help stop, stop explosions, right? Um, in, in certain places it's used. We want to see, can that polymer uh, or ca can the chemistry that this person's created be used in... Uh, Biotech, you know, can, can it be used to, can, is it transferable to a drug in some way, that same chemistry? Is it transferable to um, uh, oil lines and transferring oil from place to place? Um, mm. We're looking for a really broad application beyond the invention. And in most cases, the answer is yes with the stuff we're most interested in. It, it does have more than one application. Um, so that's the, the first key for us, right? Then we, we look at and say, okay, um, does this idea have the potential to make massive impact on humanity? Um, is, is it really going to be very persuasive? Uh, you know, a question Eric and I regularly toss around is, is this a product our parents would somehow adopt and use? Um, that, that, that I, that's actually one of our big filters. Um, do we think that they have the first to be to market? So as a, for instance, we've seen a lot of interesting uh, diagnostic tools recently from saliva to blood, right? And when we're looking at them, it's okay that somebody isn't the leader. We're just saying, is there enough of a cost savings that they can lead the market? Is there enough of a 
differentiation, their business model? Are they giving it away for free? You know, what are they going to do so that they have a chance of um, winning the market? Uh, next, we would say, do we have a chance at an asymmetrical return? Can we, you know, in this investment, is it as simple as trying to combine it with buying a lab that has a cash flow and then taking some of that extra cash flow that we're buying uh, at 100% financing potentially and, and marrying it with that investment? Um, or do we have to put a very low investment dollar amount in at, at a low enough valuation that it's got a chance to really balloon? Right? So we really care about Can that. Can you make a buck? Right? Yeah. Can you make a buck? Well, no, it's not just about making a buck. Can we? Because you, you're in the business of making a dollar. I'm in the business of turning a dollar into 20 or 30 because of the nature of how early I invest. So many of the things correct. we'll invest and we'll no, lose. Correct. Correct. We have to see that asymmetrical potential return. Um, uh-huh. Because it's yeah. a high-risk scenario, right? So mm-hmm. um, next thing we wonder about is, and we care about is, do they just want capital or do they want help in actually building their company? People who want just our capital, we're not interested in. Got it. So you're, in a sense, like me, you want a, a relationship is better, right? Yeah, but we want to be more than a relationship. We want to be really active. So right. yes, a relationship is better. But if we can't be active capital, if we can't help bring in non-dilutive funding, if we can't help rethink their business model, if we can't drive their entire IP process to, to cover all of those categories and potentially to sell the non-core IP or license non-core IP away, we're probably not interested. Um, and then we really like to see milestone-based uh, investments. So we want a chance to double and triple down, but we want it to be on milestones. We don't want it to be frivolous in any way. Uh, we'd rather pass on a deal that everybody else is competing on than have a deal that isn't based on milestones. I'm not saying we won't do it. I'm just saying it's really rare. Say that one more time to me, Neil. A lot of uh, venture capitalists or angels have a, right. uh, and I, you know, I'm going to give the entire group a, a bad name, having have what you know I call. A lemming mentality. Oh, this person's in the deal. We should be in the deal. As a, for instance, if Chris Saka, one of the first investors in Uber or Twitter, uh, was in a deal, it would signal to a lot of people it must be a good deal. We'd still want to look at it ourselves. Clearly, he's a brilliant guy. It'd be hard to argue that he's not brilliant and that his name alone will help carry more success with the company. And we'd prefer to see an investment that has milestones associated with it. And that we can help in. And uh, we want to see uh, you know, a more novel deal structure than I think is, is What's typical. What's an example of a milestone that you would be happy with? Or that... So let's say there's five technological milestones um, and two IP milestones. We might agree to invest the same amount of money, but we'd break it up over the success of those milestones. We, we, to, we want a chance to make sure everybody's actually working for the capital. Um, that, that, that's fairly important. The, the other thing is, I'll give you a great example of a company we really like and we followed for 18 months. Um, they came back to us and did everything we'd suggested they did 18 months ago. We wrote them a term sheet and said, hey, listen, when you get to this next milestone, uh, we'll write you a check. And so we bought ourselves more time. We're helping the company get to that milestone. Uh, we know that's going to be worth more uh, than... Uh, we valued it at. The company knows that too, 
But because of our early commitment, it's given a lot more confidence to some other early investors who are, are not organized capital, angel investors more specifically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's, the, that, that's a deal we really like because it's really good in terms of our resource allocation. It costs us very little to help somebody get where they're going. We're going to have a better relationship with them. We're going to, our LPs are going to be happier with us because we got into the better valuation. Um, I would say every scenario is different in how that structure might look and how far along the company is. But uh, that, that's the kind of thing we're looking for. Does that, I mean, those are, those are some of the common things we're looking for in a deal, but probably not all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some overlap for me too. You know, I mean, certainly in my business, if some famous investor, of course, the most famous, like a Warren Buffett is investing in a company, then they, people flock to it. Uh, just that imprimatur alone is enough. And I've always thought we have to do our research in the right order to not be influenced by um, some of these exogenous variables, like who else is in the deal, because the differences of opinion matter. <laughs> The, the anyway. other, the other yeah. thing, I don't know, and you probably do this a lot, we have different um, theses for different, or theses, I don't know actually the correct word for that, um, for different uh, areas. So in biochemical sensors, we're actually really active in looking for deals, right? And where in maybe some places of like protein engineering, we're not necessarily so active in going to look for those deals, but we'll, we'll totally take a look at them. Um, so it kind of depends on what field it is as to what approach we might take as well. Mm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that must be the case with you investing in REITs and public markets and, you know, uh, commodities. But I'm curious. Oh, how, yeah. I mean, I know, you, I know you're, you're big in gold right, right now. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. How is it you guys look at that from a bottom-up approach? Yeah, so we... Um, some of the things come first from a, a top-down approach, from a sort of macro view um, in my world. Um, where's the the money moving? Where is the revenue growing? What is there substitution? Is there a shift? Um, and then the micro, which um, companies basically are the best for this kind of model. Um, so, for example. Um, with precious metals, we just have seen the increasing desperation on the part of the central banks to devalue currencies um, with the hope that this will stimulate economic growth, and it just really hasn't worked. Um, and historically, it never has. So there's a, a point at which um, people will substitute from these fiat currencies more and more to hard commodity currencies like gold and silver. Um, <clears throat> And that's that's definitely been uh, being borne out now. Another thing too is though I don't think that the central banks, as another theme, will um, they won't cease and desist. <laughs> they're they're bound and determined in my mind to turn the the dollar, the yen, the euro into confetti. And um, but what does that kind of inflationary ultimately? I mean, you know, what what does that um, what business models would prosper and thrive in that? And I think any business where you're getting a, a royalty payment um, on 
say, transfers would benefit, like um, a Visa, MasterCard. Uh, Western Union is great in that sense, high returns on equity. But as they're, you know, you're, instead of transferring $200 to Mexico, now you've got to send 400 <laughs> because of inflation. And so those rising transfer payments, and you're getting a royalty stream on that, the royalty stream is going to grow as well. Um, so I see, I see that as a, um, a kind of macro view of what's happening with our currencies in the world, and then on the micro, marrying it with a thesis about which business models would most likely prosper or thrive, or at least keep pace with this inflationary pressure. Interesting. Okay. I, well, I, this is interesting because I, one of the things I was curious about to talk to you today, um, this, you know, I always feel like I'm your student. I come to class to learn from you. Um, uh, me too. I feel like I'm your student. In <laughs> <laughs> the way Both I ask learning. questions. Um, and learning beats knowing for sure. Well, what's interesting is I'm able to have better conversations about what's going on in the world uh, simply because of our podcast. So that's really cool. Mm. Um mm. You know, it seems like corporate America is making less all of the time. Making right? less. Like making less profit than they did, say, 10 oh, years ago. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been very evident. But the it's fascinating how the financial media has trivialized this actual situation. But anyway, yeah, that the revenues have been dropping. Well, no, so how do you actually pick a good stock? I mean, what do you do? What do you. Uh, obviously, there are companies doing good things, but. Uh, while I didn't look yeah. at what Amazon did the other day in order to make Je Jeff Bezos six billion extra dollars, you know what was the oh, wow. profit I mean, well that, enough? Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's a, that, that's an interesting story, and it's a it's a puzzle that it's it's a little too tough for me. the The annual report and the the financial information that Amazon puts out is legally okay, but it's um, it's very confusing and it obfuscates where the money. You know, it's hard. You cannot. It's impossible to track which business divisions are making money, where the losses are, where the capital should. I mean, maybe Jeff knows, but I think that <laughs> I'm it, sure Jeff knows. <laughs> yeah, but I think you know certain businesses are subsidizing others, and I can't figure out the, the math behind it. Like, I'm sure Amazon's web services is profitable. How profitable? I don't know. What are the returns on equity? What are the you know, what's the, even the operating margins in that business, you can't really figure it out. Um, but I've got to believe they're, for example, losing money on Prime. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that's, they make money on that. That's a loss leader, but it's created some loyalty among Amazon customers. A lot, I mean, amazingly, it's created a lot of loyalty still. Get stuff the same It's day. hard to measure yeah. given the, the way that they present the information. So it's unknown. So but I, it still looks very rich. <laughs> it's a very richly priced stock, man. I've never seen anything like it, given the, the earnings they're showing. You know. Well, so this seems to be more of the way of corporate America. It is, I guess, intrinsic value in most companies has gone down. Yes. Yeah. I would, I, I, I mean, that's a... Hey, that's a big blanket value. statement, but it seems to me that seems to yeah. happen, right? Ian so couldn't join us today, but that was one of the questions he actually posed to me. Yeah, and I would say to Ian that that is probably true, but the countervailing force that's helping keep asset prices high 
are these low interest rates, these policy-driven interest rates are low. And obviously, you know, when you've got a 2% interest rate then and you're discounting future cash flows at 2%, the asset's worth a lot more than if you're discounting at 6%. So these low interest rates create this, I really think, um, temporary environment where asset prices have been elevated because they're levered up more. Uh, it's So asset prices haven't cracked or come down sufficiently relative to the earnings power of American businesses, which in you're right, in the main, has been deteriorating. But we really are a global economy, and these capital flows are moving around the globe pretty much unimpeded, though I think capital controls, sadly, I'm not in favor of them, but I think that that um, is something we should expect along with our, you know, most right-wing populism in politics. And it's not just, you know, Trump in America, but Marine Le Pen in France and the AFD alternative for Deutschland in Germany and these um, more right-wing xenophobic um, political parties are are taking and the Brexit, the British voting on an exit from the Eurozone, all these um, these policies are taking hold around the world and there's more of a protectionist impulse certainly that's coming around. So that'll even restrict capital flows and profits more. So is this so, a pendulum? Yeah. Like, you know, I kind of look at venture capital valuations as a pendulum, right? They'll go up and they'll go down. Founders will be uh, more highly valued for now, and then later investors will be. And we'll just go back and forth. And I'm not even saying right. the time scale, but will there be an increasing intrinsic value in corporate America, Fortune 500, again over the next 10 years in your mind? Over the next 10 years, uh, um, yes, there will be, Neil, for sure. For sure. Um, there, there will. Um, are we, uh, I guess the question is, what does it look like? Are we looking out over a long valley, a deep valley, a shallow short valley, a shallow long well, valley? No, I don't know. So, try and break I, that if, down into real English when you're saying that. I, I understand there's a term. So there, do but, we, yeah, I, I believe you're right, surely. Um, you know, one of the things that has kept um, American business so strong is its adaptability. And we are here for business. I mean, American American uh, institutions and enterprise go hand in hand. And um, we've been through a lot of um, economic ups and downs in the last hundred years, but American business is very resilient. That um, that will happen again. It's um, amazingly adaptable will the and and so companies will be rebuilding their capital base bases um, so yeah but I don't know does does that necessarily imply then that we have to get a better price tag I mean by most measures today's stock market and here I'm speaking in generalization so I'm asking for forgiveness from any listener <laughs> because to generalize of course, in, no. to a great extent, is to miss a lot. But you're not, you're not going to get the forgiveness. The, but we want to hear it anyway. Yeah, the the, the S and P 500 <laughs> is one example, or the Dow, or the Russell. The these measures of the stock market's value through these indexes, um, you know, it's the highest ever. Either you know the highest 
stock market value, depending on which valuation measure you use, price to book value, price to earnings, normalized earnings, the so-called CAPE, cyclically adjusted PE, price to earnings multiple. When you look at some of those, our stock market is either the highest value, <laughs> valued market, richest price in history, or somewhere between one and three. So it's in the top ranks, and um, deep stock market crashes have happened from levels lower in terms of valuation measures than it is than the stock market uh, is today. Does that necessarily imply a crash or some um, or a long period of unwinding like Japan? I, I just don't know. How do we get back to normal valuations? The stock market does never doesn't ever move sideways. You know, like I've reached fair value and I'm going to sit here like a peacock, <laughs> preening, and then eventually, as we continue to build more capital and our our um, equity base expands, then the stock price will move up. No, it's um, there's a lot of angst and emotion, fear and greed. So prices are volatile, but really the intrinsic value of a company doesn't change that rapidly. And for great companies like a Procter and Gamble or a Johnson and Johnson, historically just keeps building over time. You know, if you're getting 16% returns on equity, then in just a few years you've added, you know, 50% more to your equity value. Um, and over 10 years, your equity value has grown by one and a half times. So, and just using those kinds of simple numbers when you think about it. So there's a to to borrow from Warren Buffett, he's very right. Uh, one of the most reliable things probabilistically is that um, the equity values of successful and, and sound businesses will continue to grow over time. So you want to invest in those productive businesses and ride that wave. Um, but we're always thinking of risk versus reward. And, you know, is buying one of the richest markets in history um, the, in terms of the developed markets, the U.S., Europe, and Japan, is that a sound investment policy? Or can we get better returns if we invest in, say, some emerging markets, which have already been crashing all the way since someone since 2010, 2012? So you're getting some very low valuations in places like Poland and Russia and Brazil right now. Um, you know, so that those are... Those are the questions I keep asking myself. Where's the, where do you get the best risk reward, um, the best turn for your for your investment dollar? Well, so some of the weirdest thing to me about the financial industry, maybe, maybe I guess the whole world is becoming this way, but we'll focus on finance right now. Is you know I saw a a big chief economist from a big bank that we've all used um, speak, and right after him I saw. <laughs> A, uh, a big uh, chief economist from another big bank um, talk about the state of the economy. This is like two years ago. And they completely diametrically disagreed on everything. So I yeah. kind of throw my arms up. I'm like, wait, these guys are supposed to be the worldwide experts with access to the most data in every way you can imagine. And they disagree. I, it, it was... Mm -hmm dumbfounding to me. I couldn't even believe it, right? I just, I, I was like, what? Uh, what's going on here? Um, and I left just as confused as when I'd started about what's really going on in the economy. Uh, I'm curious, I, I know you're doing a lot of your own research, 
And that's some of the reason you probably like commodities more today. Um, mm -hmm. But how is it you parse through all of that? I mean, we talked a little bit about some of your process, but how is you parse through all of that information? Because, you know, another brilliant person may have a completely different opinion than you, and you may respect them. So where, where does that all, I mean, how do you explain the, the two down years you've ever had in your entire life? Well, I would say, Neil, so, Sorry, that, that's a uh, tough question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a tough question, but I'll and I'll answer it. But I have this kind of similar question to you because when we were talking, once you mentioned that there's a diagnostics um, research team that you guys were looking at, at maybe Stanford or Johns Hopkins, I can't remember which, and you said it's amazing that there's no that the VCs are not lined up out the door because this group's really doing good work, and. <clears throat> You know, everyone in the financial markets has an opinion, and someone's going to be right, and someone's not going to be right. <laughs> Every time you're buying a share of stock, someone is selling it to you. So that person on the sales side, maybe they're motivated by some um, immediate financial need, but they might have a long-term view that disagrees with yours, like, hey, this company's appreciated or it's no good anymore. There are better investments out there. I'm selling. So um, you have to always ask yourself, why am I taking this position? Why is my opinion, why do I feel it's really right? I mean, I keep a journal, but I also recognize, too, that in finance, probably more than any other business, there are a lot of individuals who are compromised. Um, there's a lot of promotional activity. You know, um, my industry, the financial industry broadly, the one that I'm a participant in, is the only industry I've seen that sells products that were meant to implode. <laughs> they don't say that. But, with, you know, a lot of these um, CDOs, CLOs, and CMOs, these mortgage, synthetic mortgage bonds that were built back in the Lehman era were completely, um, they were trash. They were designed to fall apart. And that um, if I built a tricycle <laughs> and sold it and it was designed to fall apart, the liability would be too great. There's no way a company could survive, yeah. nor could you sell another product. N nor would Yet the government the bail you out. Are, right. The investment banks are amazing. Goldman Sachs, I mean, they're not to pick on them. They're the, they're the biggest and probably the most visible and kind of the new Rothschilds. You know, they're politically involved, very active. Um, they definitely know how to make money, but it isn't always at, in the best interest of their clients. Very frequently, it's at odds with their clients. They trade against client positions. This is um, a kind of rather new world, and it reminds me of John Kenneth Galbraith, the great Harvard economist who said that it's very hard to have a man understand something when his salary is dependent on him not understanding <laughs> <laughs> so if you have an economist and he works for Goldman Sachs, he might be saying, now's a great time to load up on energy stocks while the equity department at Goldman Sachs is quietly selling. So he, in some ways, is listening to the brain trust at Goldman Sachs. He's the lead economist, but really sometimes that's ceremonial. He's a mouthpiece. He goes on CNBC and says, well, our firm and our research department and the brain trust at Goldman Sachs, again, just picking a name out of the hat, says 
you should be buying energy stocks, this is a low, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, really, the firm's money-making arm, their trading division, is quietly selling energy stocks. And what this man has done, wittingly or unwittingly, as a lead economist, is to create some demand so that they, they suffer less in price. The demand is there. People are buying the shares as Goldman Sachs is actually selling. This is um, derisively known in some corners as the pump and dump. You know, pump up a stock or an idea while you're quietly dumping it. Um, it's sometimes not um, overt. And sometimes a big company like a Goldman Sachs can have three different brains, and the economist, the economics department, really just doesn't know what the trading arm is doing. But someone knows. <laughs> someone knows. Somebody at the top. So I sometimes look at these, and I think when I hear um, two different opinions on well, the I mean, same topic. That must have been your entire career. So you, you've done well every, most every year you've existed, right? Uh, right, right. Sorry, keep going. Well, well, it's just really like ferreting out where the valuable information is. So if, if I see a, a man who's like, he works for a hedge fund or for himself, and he's, or he's an economic consultant, then his reputation really matters. That's all he's got. If it's an economist for a big bank, like he works for J.P. Morgan Chase, and he says, I think the economy is recovering and it's very strong and blah, blah, blah. Well, he could just be talking his book. I mean, he's working for a big banking institution their reputation's not on the line as if it were Chris Heidel, economic forecaster, saying, hey, look, rail car loading fell by 6%. This has never happened outside of a recession. We've seen the earnings decline for now since Q4 2014. So we've had, you know, six to seven consecutive quarters of declining earnings and revenues. This has never happened outside of a recession. <laughs> My reputation matters. I would believe the Chris Heidel economic forecast more than I would from any big bank or wirehouse because they would have competing motives for sure. So I'll try to answer some of the same question. Like, how do I, you know, how do I say that the diagnostic I'm looking at is going to be better potentially than the ones everybody else is missing? I'm trying to look for intrinsic value. Maybe this might be what you're trying to say too because I don't, you don't have a competing interest. I'm trying to say, is there a body of work here that's been thoughtful enough that people have put enough time in to lead in a field in some way, the research going on, and as a result, do they have a chance at winning? Um, and if they don't have a chance at winning, is, is there anything I can do to affect that chance? Um, so, yeah, we, we saw this great diagnostic. We, we did, did not get a term sheet accepted on at UCLA. Um, and... That, you know, that was the way we looked at it. Uh, we, we did probably nine months' worth of research on this company, on, on this technology, to see if we could take it to market. Right? And then ultimately, on a, our part, <laughs> a little sad we couldn't. But we found things we liked just as much since then because of all of the lessons we've learned and, and that biochemical sensor space. Um, so I, I don't know if that... Uh, you, you answered my question for me. I don't know if I've answered your question for you. <laughs> no, no, it it it, um, it definitely helps, and I certainly just know from um, the standpoint of the economics of the deal, getting a, a decent return on the dollar and finding those 
um, technologies and ideas that are asymmetrical in terms of the risk reward, like you were saying earlier, the it, you benefit when there's not a crowd, right? <laughs> Bidding up the value of the proposed technology. You know, so I, when yeah, keep going. When there's a crowded trade, it's not always the most economic. But also when there's nothing but crickets, and you're alone. I guess you really have to do some soul searching. It's a brave new Why world. <laughs> yeah, every time you learn, it's a brave new world. Um, uh, yeah, but you know, I, I, it would, I never really worry about the soul searching moment for that as much. Um, if you look at what Elon Musk has done, you know, he only went into fields that were not completely developed, or the things he's known for were not completely developed, right? Um, and he made them work. So. You're going to have some successes and failures. He happened to have more successes than failures. Uh, as an investor, you, you know, it's not going to be the same ratio because I'm not the one running every one of those. Um, I, you, want to, you definitely want to be leading the pack on those because, look, we're, we're the highest risk asset class, right? For, we're in the high risk asset class for investors. So we need to make sure that the risk we're taking is commensurate with the potential return. I think the issue with being in Silicon Valley is you're always on defense. You're always trying to compete with what everybody else is doing. And when you're not mm. there, you, can, you have a chance to, you know, like the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, we, we quoted right. earlier, said, or we talked about earlier, said that, you know, when I was in Omaha, I had one good idea a month and I could execute on it. I'm probably getting this quote wrong. When I was in New York, I had... 10 good ideas a day. I could not execute on them. I think maybe it's right. easier for us to spot value not always being on defense. Right, right, right. Right? So maybe yeah. much like yourself, I guess maybe we're more similar than I realized in that we're doing our own research. We're, we, we, we try and we, we look for ways to shoot holes in our research from the technology, from the team, the business, the IP, we're almost always in the happiest and nicest ways looking uh, to say no to things, uh, even though we're really optimistic, especially Eric, who you've met, and I are the most optimistic of everybody on every technology, finding reasons to say no where everybody finds reasons to say no much earlier than us. So we find it's uh, a pretty good balance. Mm -hmm. And it's not like they're convincing us. We're just continuing to look. Right, right. Chris, I think Thank we should you. end our podcast there, actually. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs>